0: You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're going to wrap up our historical examination of Christianity in Japan. I said we're wrapping up our two-parter this week. In this episode, I hope it will be as fascinating to you as it was to me. I got stuck in the weeds a lot looking over different papers. The second half of the story is not as cut and dry as the first part, so it's really easy to go off on a tangent. We left off last week with the emergence of the hidden Christians. After 250 years of complete isolation, in 1858, Japan opened its door at the insistence of American naval officer Commodore Perry. Soon after this, French priests returned to Nagasaki and built a church for other French residents to worship in. Christianity is still illegal in Japan at this point for Japanese citizens, and a French priest is overlooking Nagasaki from his window when he sees a small group of Japanese banging on the church doors, and he learns from them that they are the Urakami Christians hidden away for almost 300 years. Urakami is a region in northern Nagasaki, and they even still knew certain Latin prayers, so everybody's excited, at least in the West, Japan is less than thrilled, but it's a little bit more complicated than it appears on the surface. They originated or survived based on their history of denial. Their ancestors were the ones who repeatedly rejected Christ by stepping on the fume'e. They didn't have Bibles, which is understandable, but they had also never had Bibles. At the time of their ancestors' conversions, Catholic priests were the only ones with access to the scriptures, so they had never read the Bible for themselves, nor had their ancestors. They had also hidden images of Mary and Jesus within Buddhist idols, and they registered at the local temple, and were given funeral rites as Buddhists. They didn't write anything down, which is again understandable, but they weren't an oral society. And the theology, while shaky to begin with, suffered from generations of what is essentially telephone. They incorporated elements of Shintoism and Buddhism, and it became altogether something new. And many that came out of hiding rejoined the Catholic Church, but others remained hidden, or rather remained as hidden Christians, refusing to betray what their ancestors worked so hard to preserve by worshipping publicly. And there are still hidden Christians today, although they're in little pockets all over remote regions of Japan, and they're only just now dying off, as the youth have no interest in preserving the history. When Westerners began arriving in Japan, they balked at the usage of the fumae, and it was swiftly ended. And in 1858, an American missionary named Townsend Harris was able to achieve religious freedom for Americans living and working in Japan. He was able to do this because of a precedent set by the Dutch, which allowed them to build churches and worship freely. Way back in 1664, the Tokugawa erected signboards advertising rewards for the apprehension of Christian believers. These famous triple edict boards were revived in 1868 and proved to be a source of irritation for Western diplomats. Along with the strict prohibition of Christianity, the placards also warned against robbery, murder, and arson. So to the Japanese government, Christianity was just as dangerous as robbery, murder, and arson. Missionaries who came to Japan had to be careful to avoid overt evangelism and to restrict their contacts with the Japanese to secular pursuits like training them to be interpreters. And missionary writings of this period abound with accounts of persecution of their students and language teachers, government suppression of clandestine scripture and tract translation projects, and harassment by government spies. A pastor named Guido Verbeck later recalled, We were regarded as people who had come to seduce the masses of people from their loyalty to the God-country and to corrupt their morals generally. Dr. Samuel R. Brown of Nagasaki was writing on the infeasibility of scripture translation. This article appeared in 1866 in the Christian Intelligencer, which was a Reformed Church of America publication, and it reads in part, Shall we print the gospel? The missionaries hesitate, fearing bloodshed. For by the laws of Japan, whoever may be converted by reading the Word of God may be put to death with all his family. Many missionaries on the ground of Japan told their converts that they could no longer hide what they had in times past. They were still required by law to register at the temple and to have a Buddhist burial. But by 1867, the Urakami Christians were refusing to call the Buddhist priests for burial of their dead. The village headman, caught between sympathy for the villagers and awareness of the strictness of the religious laws, tried to enforce the Buddhist burials, but while at the same time requesting leniency on the part of the nobles. His efforts gained time, but ultimately failed. Urakami was soon raided, and 63 Christians were imprisoned for adhering to a religion different from the eight approved ones. In February of 1868, the new Meiji government, which restored power to the emperor and wanted to see Japan take her rightful place among the modern nations of the world, appointed Sawa Nobayoshi in charge of the public order of the region. His dislike of all things foreign to Japan was well known, and after consultation, he decided to deal with the problem once and for all. His plan to exile the entire village was approved by an imperial council on April 25th and implemented in two stages, first the ringleaders and then the rest of the village. Families were split up, and in total 3,414 Christian men, women, and children were sent into exile all over Japan. The Western countries were less than impressed, though. The Irakami persecutions were notorious indications that Japan was still barbarously hostile to Christianity, and therefore ineligible for admission to the family of modern nations. The harsh treatment of the native Christians helped provoke the treaty powers to demand thorough legal and social reforms as prerequisites for treaty revision. This is exactly the same thing that happened 300 years before. Christianity was allowed because it was politically and diplomatically expedient. Once it was no longer so, it was tossed, as we'll see later. So religious freedom is granted in 1873, which brings in a new era of missionaries, and Christianity has a bit of a booming period. In the 1880s, Christianity was so influential in Japan that some of the officials proposed recognizing it as a national religion. One of the groups of people most interested in the gospel were young intellectuals. Many young Japanese students felt isolated from society during the Meiji Restoration due to their greater privileges and unique experiences. Many had adopted an opposition to religion because of the corruption witnessed in Buddhism, and Christianity's focus on the individual relationship and the Bible really interested them. One of the most influential missionary educators was William Clark. He was an agricultural guru, a veteran of the Civil War, and the president of the Massachusetts Agricultural College, which is now the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And in 1876, the Japanese government hired Clark as a foreign advisor to establish the Sapporo Agricultural College, or the SAC, which is now Hokkaido University. And during his eight months in Sapporo, Clark successfully organized SAC, had a significant impact on the scientific and economic development of the island of Hokkaido, and made a lasting imprint on Japanese culture. In fact, he wrote back to his wife that he was a little surprised and nervous about how much power he had over the local government officials, because they listened to whatever he suggested. Clark's visage overlooks Sapporo from several statues, and his parting words to his Japanese students, Boys be ambitious, has become a nationally known motto in Japan. And because of his influence, he got permission to use the Bible in his ethics class. He inspired his students who then imparted biblical ethics and Christian ideas with some actual conversion to the second class of students after he had gone back to America. Uchimura Konzo is one such student, and his views have an immense impact on the way that Christianity is seen among Japanese Christians in particular, and not necessarily in a good way. He founded the non-church movement, which is a movement that basically said you don't have to be in a church or to believe in baptism or to take communion in order to be saved. He was also a pacifist, because when he came to America, he was tutored by some Quakers, and this fell in direct opposition to the way that Japan was heading And it didn't make him very popular. But he also wanted a Christianity that reflected Japan and not the West. And he was very influential among Japanese Christians. And so his ideas and worries about Christianity not reflecting Japanese culture was something that proved to be a really big deal to Japan. Because they wanted to modernize and also had the militaristic might of the West. But they didn't want to take any of the culture with it. And Japan watched the West colonize everyone else around them and didn't want to become like the other countries. Hence why they sought to modernize so quickly. But Christianity was considered to be tainted by the West, and many Japanese Christians wanted a Christianity that reflected Japan, like Uchimara, but they struggled to figure out exactly what that meant. They were more concerned with their identity as Japanese than their identity in Christ, and this became a breaking point for many of the Japanese, as we will see later. Oftentimes in missionary endeavors, it takes a while for Christianity to become truly accepted and to raise up native pastors and native missionaries, but Japan took to it immediately. And you'll find much more on Japanese Protestant missionaries in Japan than you will explicitly foreign missionaries in Japan. One such Japanese missionary was named Joseph Nasima. Nasima was from a samurai family. Samurai tended to be from that intellectual class that was very receptive to Christianity. And I know we've talked about this a little bit, and samurai do come up, so I wanted to explain a little bit more what they are and how they play a role in Japanese history. Samurai were the ruling nobility class of the military. And during Japan's feudal days, they played a really big role because they were very loyal to specific warlords, and they lived by a very strict code of conduct or honor called the Bushido, and they were highly well-respected among Japanese. And as the feudal days came to an end and the Edo period took over, there wasn't really a need for the samurai to be militaristic as much, and so a lot of them became bureaucrats or teachers. And so by the time that Japan opened back up, the samurai ruling class as it was was historically was coming to an end, and while still highly respected, they held more scholarly roles, and they were some of the first Christians in Japan during the nineteenth century. Now Joseph Nasima learned about Christianity and the US through Chinese books written by missionaries, and he really admired the United States and their culture, so he decided he wanted to go visit. But at the time, which was the 1860s, going abroad without government permission was a capital offense that resulted in execution. So he goes to a foreigner-friendly port in northern Japan and befriends the chaplain of the Russian consulate there, teaching him Japanese. And this chaplain later goes on to found the Russian Orthodox Church in Japan. And while he's there, Nasima sees the rampant immorality and decides that Japan needed moral change. Christian ethics seemed to be a good introduction to the gospel for many Japanese intellectuals. He was able to convince an American captain to take him to America. And while they're docked in Shanghai, he sells his samurai sword for some money to buy a Chinese New Testament which on a deeper level, the samurai sword represented everything culturally that he was. But he gives that up in order to learn more about Christianity. And as they're sailing, the captain decided that he really liked Nassima, and so he decided to teach him English and employed him as a cabin boy. And Nesima had no idea how to pray, but he learned how to pray from reading Robinson Crusoe. And he asked for God to direct him once he arrived in America. And the owner of the ship that brought him to Boston really liked him, and decided to pay his way through two different colleges, including seminary. And he becomes the first Japanese to earn a bachelor degree. He also serves as the interpreter for the Japanese diplomatic mission that was heading all over Western countries, looking at how they were modernizing and getting an idea of what it meant to be a modern nation. And before he leaves to go back to Japan, he talks to this foreign mission board. And he said he wasn't going to leave until they gave him the money he needed to start a school. So he left with $5,000. When he got back to Kyoto, he founded the Doshisha University, which means One Endeavor or One Purpose. And it began with 30 Christian samurai and is still in operation today. He eventually left Japan due to poor health to recuperate in America. Nasima still believed that a foundation of Christian morality was necessary for Japanese civilization to advance, and he wrote for Japanese newspapers to that end. When he died at the age of 47, his last words were, Peace, Joy, Heaven. And he has a really cool story and his legacy is commendable. But unfortunately, Japan never achieved his dream for a foundation of Christian morality. And in fact, it moved in the opposite direction. In World War I, Japan helped the Allies and was awarded with a seat at the League of Nations. Unfortunately, Woodrow Wilson and the other heads of the Western nations refused to give them equal standing. Japan renewed its fervor for modernization, striving to become the colonizer instead of the colonized. And they became increasingly nationalistic and militaristic, neither of which, when taken to extremes, is ever a good sign. And the growth of Protestantism was slowed dramatically in the early 20th century because of the pressure caused by criticism and the influence of the military government. Following the Russian Revolution, Japan became politically unstable and was in danger of being toppled by the communists. Marxist ideologies were gaining favor among the younger people, and so Japan had a completely reasonable response to this. In 1925, they passed the Peace Preservation Law as a way of stamping out ideological crime or thought crime. And if that reminds you of the book 1984, that is completely understandable. They established Shin Buddhist prison chaplains to oversee the forced conversion of those whose ideologies are not in line with Japanese nationalism. They utilized a method known as Tenko, which was highly successful. And Tenko was a way to turn inwards, away from political engagement in the public sphere and towards the private realm of family, home life, and religious experience. Correctional bureaucrats and Shin chaplains sought to discourage political activism by supplanting it with introspection. The 1936 Thought Criminals Protection and Surveillance Law harnessed temples and other religious and civic institutions into a network of surveillance. The link between private groups and the state's probation offices effectively reproduced some of the population monitoring functions last seen under the Tokugawa Temple Certification System. In both cases, the political authorities turned to religious authorities for help maintaining the social order primarily due to perceived ideological threat posed by imported, i.e. Western ideas. Now, we don't really know what happened to Christians living in Japan during this time. Unlike the first Christians in Japan from the 17th century, there's no clear documentation from when they were there to not so much. But I think we might have an idea. It would be very surprising if they were not considered political prisoners and subjected to the forced conversion methodologies we just covered and slowly stamped out. And I found this article in Time magazine that was published in September of 1940. And I want to read part of it here, and while it's a little bit lengthy, I think it gives you a really good idea of what was happening to Christianity in Japan at the time period. Last week, as the Japanese government's undercover campaign to purge Christian missions of their foreign elements and reduce Christianity to the status of a minor sect within the Shinto nationalist cult progressed, there was further evidence that Japanese Christians today have no thirst for martyrdom. When I stand in front of this shrine, I feel differently from the way I feel at any other place, a journalist reported Bishop Abi as saying. I feel a great sense of peace of inexpressible sacredness, and of oneness with the ancestor of my country, and my own ancestors. I am moved with a feeling of holiness, of piety. My spirit worships, but this is not religion, it is respect, adoration. Bishop Abi is slated to head the genuine Japan Christian Church into which all Protestant sects in Japan are being merged. Having imposed native heads on the Protestant mission and pledged them to renounce their foreign financial support, the Japanese government moved on to the Orthodox and Roman Catholic communions. Roman Catholics, the victims 300 years ago of Japan's great Christian martyrdom, were silent last week over the forced resignation of the Six. The Pope's apostolic delegate to Japan did not publicly protest. Catholics and Protestants are made to worship at Shinto shrines. Japanese nationalists look on Christianity less as a religion than as a part of a way of life for the U.S. and Britain. And the Japanese are suppressing Christianity with Oriental courtesy. Foreign financial aid, they hinted last week, need not be halted, a foreign mission boards will simply turn over the money to the Japanese for disposal. What happened in Japan also happened in Germany a few years before. The state slowly took them over and the Christians said nothing. Soon after, foreign missionaries were kicked out of Japan and the empire moved full speed ahead into World War II. Imperial Japan proved to be one of the most inhumane and cruelest participants of the war. The things the Japanese soldiers did in China and the Philippines is right up there with the atrocities the Nazis committed in Germany. They devised many new ways of torturing their prisoners, one of which was sticking a tube down their victim's throat, letting their stomach bulge with water, and having someone jump on it, rupturing their stomach and other vital organs, leading to death. As they moved throughout Asia, any missionaries they discovered were treated as spies. There are a lot of missionaries who were living in Asia when Japan invaded, so we'll cover their stories and more about Imperial Japan in future episodes. After World War II, Douglas MacArthur, who was the general of the army and also in charge of the Pacific Theater... He oversaw the occupation of Japan from 1945 to 1951, and he had a heart for post-war Japan, even after all the things he had witnessed them due to his soldiers and also to civilians. He didn't harbor any bitterness, but instead he wanted to bring them the gospel. Emperor Hirohito wanted to make Christianity the national religion, which at first glance seems a little bit odd because he wasn't a Christian, but if you think about it, it's the same model they used in the 16th century and in the late 19th century. It was politically and diplomatically expedient. But MacArthur said no because he firmly believed in religious freedom and that a conversion to Christianity must be voluntary. He asked instead for America to send 10,000 missionaries. Instead, according to Billy Graham, we only sent a handful. Today, Japan is the second largest unreached people group. Christians account for only 1% of their 126 million person population. And it is a very tough mission field. Many still view Christianity as a Western religion, which they have no interest in. Suicide borders on a crisis level. It is the leading cause of death in men from the ages of 20 to 44, and women from the ages of 15 to 34. A particular concern is suicide among men who have recently lost their jobs and are no longer able to provide for their families. As you go throughout your week, remember to pray for Japan and for the missionaries and other Christians living there. I hope you learned a lot in this episode. I told you it would be a lot of information, but these events are largely unknown and give a great deal of insight into the way Japan sees Christianity, considering its history. I also want to shout out the new patrons who joined Revive Studios this past week. Special thanks to Corey, Michael, Ellen, and Zach. We really appreciate your support. If you liked this episode, make sure to share with everyone you know and everyone you meet. As always, thanks for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.